Another battery for what? Your phone or for your mic? My recorder. Your recorder. Oh, you're not plugged in? I have double, I have double A's in my iPhone. Okay, <laughs> nice. Probably works better than the original. <laughs> Anyway, welcome to TGE, the podcast. Uh, my name is Sven. I'm here with Tyler. Today we're going to talk about Fire Festival. There are two documentaries out, one from Netflix, one from Hulu, and they're sort of competing with each other. We're going to get into that. But before we do, yes, Tyler, how are you? Good, Sven. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How did you like that I actually set up what the episode is about before we talk for 20 minutes? Saved me some editing. <laughs> nice. I liked it. We're like professional podcasters now. This is episode 25, which is like mm -hmm. almost 100. And we've been doing it for 25 weeks straight. And I can't remember anything that I've done for 25 weeks straight other than eating and something else. Um, and the last four films you worked on. Yeah. Well, I'll take breaks in between, maybe. I took a week off just yeah. now. Um, so I thought, yeah, it'd be good to maybe establish some form of um, rules of engagement, like actually talk about what we're talking about. <laughs> Works for me. Should we explain what the podcast is, though, if we're playing this game? Yeah, please do. We, <laughs> I was going to have you do it because you do it so well, but we appreciate the, over the course of these 25 weeks, we appreciate the listens that we've received. We appreciate the responses we've received. We appreciate you spreading the word. We appreciate you <laughs> subscribing to whatever platform you're listening to it on. And I just saw that now, according to Apple, we got an email that said, you can say, hey, Siri, subscribe to this podcast. So as a challenge, try that and let us know how it works. The last challenge we put out there um, in the Bandersnatch episode last week that popped up in the video that Dennis edited was let us know if you arrived at the scene we were analyzing the fight scene on your first go through the movie and it sounds like quite a few people did in the youtube comments from what i saw a few people and they were like yeah i took a rough path like it was <laughs> they chose a lot of a lot of aggressive choices to get to that as the on their first go and i just yeah it just makes you wonder how long it was like all this stuff very cool but very anyways cool. was there something else that's that struck you any suggestions any comments well uh, one comment really jumped out to me that said Uh, I wrote a better film than this about Nazis with images. Um, that comment really jumped out to me. I have no idea what it was in reference to or what was happening, but stuck stuck with me. So thank you, commenter, for that comment. Yeah, well, I mean, nothing too important, but this is a podcast where we do what? Oh, uh, what do we do? Um, we actually look at specific <laughs> scenes of an iconic movie or, or TV show or something else. Could be a vlog. Maybe today that's what mm. we're going to do. And we look at the filmmaking specifically of one scene. That's the key. We're not just like broadly discussing filmmaking theories. We're getting into the weeds and we're looking at some of the choices that the filmmakers have made and why. And that's kind of cool because it gives us an incentive to look at films more closely and take stuff away and and yeah be be excited about looking at iconics. It's good to look at quality stuff if you want to set the bar for yourself and we all know what's good, but to really understand why that's a that's a whole different ballgame and possibly apply it. 
and we have had a few different approaches. We usually look at stuff we like. We love getting recommendations for stuff. That always turns out well. One time we looked at something that we really didn't like to point out what was wrong with it. It's our currently lowest listened to episode. And we also compared two scenes once, and then once we talked about a film more overall compared to a movie Sven had worked on with uh, Black Klansman. And that's kind of what we're doing today because we're comparing these two documentaries. We're not necessarily doing it with specific scenes. We're going to talk about the editing approach to kind of learn how that works. Um, Were there any comments you wanted to bring up, Sven, before we got into the the broader question? Yes, I do. Uh, Actually, you just talked about Black Klansman. I want to follow up on that one because turns out that the documentary that I edited, Alt-Right Age of Rage, is now came out this week on Netflix. It was actually trending on day two, I hear. And <laughs> uh, so now it's it's widely available in the States, in Canada, and it also uh, launched in the UK on BBC, BBC3. Apparently it's uh, playing right now, so you can go check that out. Yeah, and I spoke to the recorder, the the musician that provides the music for this podcast, Kurta, Kurta Music, and he said, hey, we started watching the alt-right movie, super cool, it's on Netflix, I I can't stand those expletives. So that was the, (laughs) but he thought it was really well done. He just can't stomach them, Uh, the the subjects of the documentary. Here's some comments from Bandersnatch, which I think are interesting. People are really criticizing the... um, the fight scene for what it is for the spectacle Mm -hmm. that they think it's like low grade not done very well Mm -hmm. or overdone somebody made a comment about the foley that's completely overproduced and like it hurt his ears and eyes to watch that scene um which like i mean i wouldn't say it's a bad fight scene and we sort of said it's it's not the greatest because of lack of Mm -hmm. production value in a sense like they were just very efficient about it um, yeah, and production value not being set aside for it because the purpose of it is to mock that type of fight scene. Yeah, I really enjoyed right? the storytelling. It's story not telling. a genuine one. Yeah, and I always right. prefer story over spectacle. So that is really cool. If they're making a sar- sarcastic comment on fight scenes, I, I get more out of that than seeing a really cool fight scene. Right. That's a comment. There you go. It seems like the analysis on the podcast is deeper than what's able to go into the YouTube clip just for your listen, your viewing pleasure, so maybe some of those points that have been made very clear and are reiterated in the YouTube video don't come across as strongly. So you're getting the real stuff here. Nice, exactly. I mean, the video is really meant to, to bring in new people and get them excited to try out the podcast anyway. So, so it kind of brings to the question what we're going to talk about today, comparing these two documentaries, because obviously nonfiction is a genre you've worked in a lot, Sven, and done some really impressive stuff in. Um, Right. All right. So it brings so you know. So the idea was to compare the approaches to these two different ones because it is is very different. But that kind of brings up a broader question. Something we're going to address in in a future episode is how do you judge good editing? Because last night at the time of this recording, the Ace Eddie Awards took place, and the Academy Awards are coming up, and movies are winning awards for editing. How do you really judge what makes a good edit? Because it's kind of an age old question. And the thing I bring up to my students a lot is, look, you can look at a movie that's not a good movie, but the editing work that has been done to get it to that point might be the best editing that's ever been done in the history of cinema, where at the same time, a great movie may not have been the most difficult editing job to pull off, right? Right. Like, I don't know, and I'm just pulling an example out of a hat, but like, there's a chance that The Revenant wasn't the most difficult editing accomplishment. 
ever made. Right, because I know that they, you know, with Birdman, they they were constantly editing the rehearsals so that the pacing and flow was there. But there's a lot of, you know, very long takes in Revenant. And it seemed like the time between they finished the movie and the time it was winning, winning its Academy Award was very, very, very short. So there's a chance that, you know, it didn't take, it wasn't terribly hard to figure out the right pieces to put together in that one. So it's a weird thing to judge. So how do you, how do you think good editing should be judged, Sven? Because there's a lot of talk about Bohemian Rhapsody, which we're going to talk about because I've seen it, but Sven hasn't about the acknowledgement it's getting and uh yeah i've been fascinated by it because the editor apparently held it together through the very troubled production and yet a lot of things are popping up about the editing not being great but uh what do you think makes good editing sven or how do you, is, never mind we know what makes good editing how do you how do you think you can judge it as an outsider how can you watch a movie and judge whether the editing is good or not it's definitely a question i wonder myself when it comes to awards like with the ACE mm-hmm. award, I can assume, okay, these are editors that are looking at it. But I feel like with the Oscars, I don't even know if it's just the editors. It's probably everybody in the Academy that sort of picks what they think is best edited. And yeah, that's what, that's what I'm wondering. So I have a friend that was nominated for an ACE award that didn't win and knew that they were not going to win. And yet the show, whatever it is, the project they knew that they were going to lose to and they were right about everyone was right about was just the most pop a very good show but just the most popular show and not necessarily anything has ever jumped out about the editing of it although we know a lot of editing goes into everything that's so it's just kind of a tough thing that's kind of my unofficial opinion um i mean i was nominated for an ace as well and Mm -hmm. the, the reason why i was nominated as part of a team was more political i think the reason why we didn't win was more political so we everybody kind of knew who was going to win just based on the the buzz of the film or the the merit of the project and right so i feel like there's just it's it's a self-fulfilling prophecy like this film seems to be doing really really well for example roma i don't know if you've seen that film yet i tried Mm -hmm. to see it and after 30 minutes i just had to decide like this is not my cup of tea like I can Ooh. appreciate black and white and like moments of just <laughs> pondering stuff, but there's very little story that I can like connect with. It was that that experience for me, but yet it's the most nominated Oscar Oscar nominated film of the year. Um, right. So it just there is more going on than the actual physical editing and somebody saying okay okay artistically this is the best edited film and right that's with every category but specifically with editing i think it's very very much so because it's so hard to judge good editing you kind of always yeah. have to assume that it's edited well because the film is working it's doing well and um the audience is responding to it so well in f- yeah, and it's particularly troubling with editing because everything an editor is trying to do is not to be noticed. Yeah. So you sometimes. have a job where you don't want anyone to know you're there. Most of the time, And then suddenly yes. it's being, <laughs> well, who did the best job? <laughs> totally. Did this, who did, did it even happen? So th- I, I think that's where, that's where I stand. Like, I don't expect to win an award for best editing until the film itself is a success. And then... Right. Then it's like you're likely to win it because you're just part of this of this wave of people just loving everything about it. 
is my take. Mm-hmm. But I'd love to hear somebody else who maybe has better insights on how that judging process really happens. And if you're part of the academy or of the uh, ACE and you are making these decisions, what do you really do? I mean, you obviously take a look at the film, right? And decide, okay, I really like this film. I can see there's some really efficient way of telling the story or can tell this is like, it's done well. Um, but is mm-hmm. that really why you nominated that person for best editing? I, I don't know. Yeah, and we're not very incredibly knowledgeable about the awards process because we're not doing it for that reason. And I think that's true of like a lot of creative people that are interested in this stuff. But I think the thing that you got right is the most important thing is that it is incredibly political, like everything. It's always political when it comes to awards and stuff. And there's a lot of fun ways that that can kind of rear its head with yeah. the editing awards because often like i know shows where people have won emmys and stuff because there was a team of 20 editors on it right so it was very easy to kind of spread the word in the community and and win people over um to get it that way and there's just always maneuvers like crash being the first best picture not be the first best picture winner but the first movie that bombarded the screen actors guild with dvd screeners because they knew that if they're the voters, then they have a chance of winning Best Picture, and then they did. So there's always some different tactic or maneuver, and, and with editing, it's no different. But you know, winning an award is also a great career achievement, and I think always deserved, even if it is the show that has, yeah. you know, streamlined, clean editing. It doesn't make it less valuable uh, yeah. the work that goes into it. We know how hard it is, so we're not taking away from anything. Yeah, and bringing it back to Bohemian Rhapsody, and we're going to make an episode about this, but that scene, and it was discussed on our Discord, in the Discord group at Patreon, people were pointing out how bad this scene was edited, how badly. And I looked at it, and I could definitely sense that something was off. Like, even without knowing that people are starting to wonder, like, like something felt off. But sometimes that's by intention. Like, I had that same reaction when I saw a scene of Manchester by the Sea, and I thought, that's terrible editing. And then I saw the film, and then I Mm -hmm. thought, wow, this is the best editing I've seen in a long time, because it made so much sense for the character to to be so off, because the character was disconnected. So, it could be a little bit of that. Yeah, and you made a great video about it. So is the scene, and we don't want to go too deep in this, but just for my own curiosity, is the scene the one where they meet the, get signed? Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah, because someone even texted me about that. Like, some totally random person was like, why is the editing so bad? So I think it's it's that other funny thing where word can get out about something, you know, prejudgment of it. And I, I don't know, I'll have to look at it again, but I remember seeing that in the theater. I don't remember thinking there was anything off with it, so maybe it, it's that thing where it works in the context. But we will discuss it deeper right. at a later date right. when Sven figures out how to watch a movie that's sort of in theaters, sort of not. Yeah, I mean sometimes we're when seeing I'm, in theaters though, Sven. So yeah. we're seeing in theaters. I'll say that. But saying it when I'm like in the rough cut stage and I have limited coverage to cut a scene, sometimes I know this is not great editing right now. Like I'm just telling right. the story and there's no concept of why I'm in a wide shot or a medium shot or a close up yet. And mm-hmm. so, so that's what felt off to me in that scene. Like it, it seemed very random how the coverage coverage was being used. Well, I think I have a theory. I mean, this is irresponsible to do, but we'll come back and see if this yeah. is right. But I have a theory. It's because there's a character that's being introduced that doesn't seem important to the scene, but is very in- important to Freddie Mercury's life that we meet for the first time in that scene. So I think it might be a thing where you're seeing him like, oh, why are we focusing on him? And then right. later on, it's like, oh, okay. 
Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. But we'll see. We will see. Yeah, let's, yeah, we'll see. Let's leave it at that. Um, it's a bunch of people talking blindly. I don't know exactly. I haven't re-looked at the scene. Sven hasn't seen the movie. But this is how things, this is how rumors start. Maybe it, this is campaigning, Sven. Maybe someone's campaigning against that movie and we're, we're aiding it. Well, it's just one. Uh, I mean, the campaign started before the announcement. Yeah, yeah. And so maybe there's a, there's a counter push. Yeah, the Very Oscars likely it's going to win the Oscar for Best Editing if you look at the history of who won the ACE Awards in drama in the last, mm-hmm. I don't know, 13 years, nine, of, nine times yeah. out of 13, uh, they won the Oscar as well. Do we have, and we're going to stop it with this podcast. Sorry. Yeah, I really want to encourage the listeners to check out on YouTube D4 Darius. He's a YouTuber who has maybe 300,000 subscribers. And he's an independent filmmaker, and he's not just a YouTuber talking about filmmaking, and him actually making YouTube videos is his extent of experience of filmmaking. He actually makes shorts, and he's done a feature, and what he's doing right now is was so fascinating for me to see. He has a series of videos where he actually strapped a GoPro on his head, and as he's directing the short... He is basically vlogging and then he's going to cut that down into like a 20-minute episode. And it's so insightful to see him work and be part of that process because he do, he has the guts to then really show for 10 minutes how he directs an actress to do a specific line read of a scene. And you can really see after... And it takes like 30 takes. He's that kind of director who takes a lot of takes to really refine it but it's so insightful to see how he can take an actress that maybe is not as experienced she's a good actress but not as experienced and be able to get the line the way that he really wants it and he's not doing line readings he just keeps directing her and keeps trying different things and that process to watch for 20 minutes uh, also mm-hmm. when he sort of finds his shot how he's going to compose a shot and tries different things super super insightful if you're an aspiring filmmaker i highly recommend you check out d for darius very cool and then we need to get one of those gopros on fincher's head yeah that's Sounds actually like it reminded me of fincher I, that's what it felt like oh this must must be like when fincher works like the specific specificity of how you really like get what you want a lot of directors sort of just they throw something against the wall this is a guy who who's very specific about it and he's finding it while he's working on it and he's not wasting that much time even though he did 30 takes it's still he gets it done mm-hmm. within an hour and i i mean a happy medium is probably somebody it's it's like in the middle know what he wants and is able to get there in five takes yeah learning the process amazing and as we talk about a lot it's also a reason why it's good any job that you take on a film set, any stage of production, if you need work, take it because it's amazing what you can learn just being around. Um, so speaking of jobs, I'm not sure what the transition is here, but speaking of fire festivals, Sven, yeah, um, let's give a little context to what we're going to be talking about. So I wonder if we should maybe set up the f- the festival. And you should cut this in between. I feel like we didn't really set this off in a way that if you don't know what Fire Festival is... I mean, go go for it. So just to set up what we're actually talking about, the Fire Festival was a failed luxury music festival created with the intent of promoting the Fire Music booking app. It was scheduled to take place April 28th to 30th, 
and May 5th and 7th, 2017, on the Bahamian island of Great Exuma. The event was promoted on Instagram by social media influencers, including socialite and model Kendall Jenner and a bunch of other people. The event experienced problems related to security, food, accommodations, medical services, and artists' relations, resulting in the festival being postponed indefinitely. Instead of the luxury villas and gourmet meals for which festival attendees, attendees paid thousands of dollars, they recovered prepackaged, they received prepackaged sandwiches and FEMA tents as their accommodations. Mm -hmm. As a result, the organizers mm -hmm. are the subject of at least eight lawsuits lawsuits, several seeking class action status, and one seeking more than 100 million in damages. There we go. Nice. Cut that together. Um, there's two fire Festival films. I didn't know... I mean, I'd heard enough. I'd had people try to explain what the fire Festival was to me. I guess I missed the pr media press bubble that it lived in for a moment, and now, of course, there's a huge resurgence because there's a big Netflix documentary that dropped about it. And then that same weekend... Shortly before the Netflix documentary dropped, or like a day or so, or even a, maybe a few days before, Hulu dropped a surprise Fire Festival documentary that they had been working on. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like, you know, what the motivation was there, whether it's just one made the other to kind of, what I'm trying to say, whether the motivation is to subvert Netflix or whether the motivation was they had their own documentary and were annoyed Netflix was doing one and had to race it out. We are not sure, but it's a fascinating thing that two, you know, pretty pretty encompassing documentaries are made about the same subject on the two separate streaming services. And then, of course, you know, you start hearing about this this documentary, and that's where I learned everything about the Fire Festival. I watched the Netflix one first. Which one did you watch first, Sven? I did too. And yes, I think we wouldn't be talking about these this documentary film if it wasn't the fact that there are two that are coming out in the same week. And I have a feeling that Hulu snuck this one in, that they were trying to get ahead of Netflix and rushed it. Mm -hmm. And I think in terms of the filmmaking, it's really interesting for us to talk about it, to see if if um, what the differences are in telling the story and which one worked pot potentially better or had a different style. Um, I can yeah. tell you that I did a little research, the one on Hulu, they actually got an interview of the main guy who organized this and ended up being going to yeah. jail for this, uh, Billy McFarland. And then I dug a little deeper, and then I found out that they actually paid him to be on the documentary. <laughs> and that Billy McFarland, the, the sneaky scammer that he is, went straight to Netflix and said, well, Hulu is doing an interview with me, and will you pay me $250,000 to get my interview as well? And Netflix declined <laughs> and said, we're not paying. And then he came back and said, I want 150000 And they declined and so on and so forth. So Billy McFarland is in the Hulu documentary and he's not in the Netflix documentary, which is... Yeah, and also the other thing is that towards the end of the Hulu one, they mentioned that the fuck Jerry media is making their own documentary about it. There's a guy who worked for fuck Jerry that felt like he got slightly iced. Yeah. And I'm just wondering if that was the Netflix version or not. I know. I think Billy Mc, uh, the producer, one of the producers of the Hulu one is part of the fuck Jerry company. Huh? So, Right, Those but he's in it. I mean, yeah, that's weird because I don't think the guy would say that. Yeah, so th hmm. that's an indication that this is... Sometimes documentaries are n not unbiased. I mean, they tend to be biased anyway because of the filmmaker and whatever reason 
he or she has to make that documentary, but sometimes mm-hmm. you get in a situation where the subject itself either pays or gets paid to be in the documentary um, or becomes a producer of it, and that obviously immediately um, puts some of the authenticity or integrity of that project in question. And maybe that's yeah. what's going on with Hulu. Well, it's tough to... Yeah, and it's weird how documentaries can be used in different ways and how different documentaries can be made about the same subject, opening new light to it. And it might feel like, oh, I saw that documentary, but then you watch the new one and it's it's in, in including the events that took place in the other documentary. The other documentary becomes a part of the new documentary. Like, I mean, one example that just popped into my mind is the two Bob Dylan documentaries. There's the one D.A. Pennebaker made way back, which was like the very objective cinema style following Dylan around type documentary and then years and years and years later Scorsese made his I think several part Bob Dylan documentary and one's included in the other and it adds new insight to it and same could be said for the Paradise Lost trilogy and how Peter Jackson made a documentary about that I mean there's so many events where you think something is exclusive to one thing and then someone can come along and sometimes surprise you do something better so we thought it'd be interesting to talk about the editing of these two things and we will admit now that we're a little biased because I don't know if we're biased, but the fact that we both saw the Netflix one first, I'm sure has some effect in our reaction. But I'll just say outright, I thought that the Netflix one, as far as editing goes, and of course, editing is an incredibly instrumental part of making a documentary. I thought it was far superior uh, to the Hulu one. Um, And the funny thing about it is so many people I know have seen both because they watch the Netflix one and then suddenly it's like, oh, I got to see, I need more. There's a Hulu one too. And the Hulu one's called Fire Fraud. Mm-hmm. And the Netflix one's called Fire Festival, the greatest party that never party happened. That never happened. Yeah, which one? What? Which one jumped out at you? As is, did you enjoy more, Sven, or did you think that they were both the same? Or well, what was your initial reaction? Then we'll kind of dissect why. Well, I, I I felt like it was a nice little documentary when I watched the Netflix one. Mm-hmm. Um, I have one criticism for both of them. I I felt like the Hulu one. I was left more confused about what actually happened. So it was good to first watch the Netflix one to get more of the backstory of this genius um, social media campaign that they pulled off and got everybody excited to come out to this deserted island in the Bahamas (laughs) to be on a yard and swim with pigs (laughs) and building this dream and then find a way to utilize free word of mouth through Instagram with like these orange tiles that were designed. And that's where Fuck Jerry comes in, who's an Instagram influencer apparently, or the company is, um, that has a huge huge following. um, That not only were they able to get people with huge followings to recommend this, but create a campaign that just cut right through all the noise and immediately spoke to that target group those the millennials mostly that just wanted to find the new burning man the new coachella and sell it to them as this idea this this deserted island which it wasn't a deserted island at the end it ended up being some (laughs) some dump as part of um um a bigger island where there's already a resort, a sands resort right next to it. Right. Um, so that's that's what's like. I, I do have to say, comparing the two documentaries, I 
felt more entertained by the Hulu one. I thought it was funnier. Um, Interesting. So, yeah, there was a more humorous tone to it. Yeah. much. Be- I had but, a much better time watching that one. But you needed the first one for context. I feel, yeah, yes. I mean, it's hard to tell. Somebody should just watch the Hulu one and feel like, did they really <laughs> understand what was going on or not? Um, well, the difference, my my main difference between the two, which I think has a lot to do with the way that it's edited together, although we are dealing with very different interviews, and I'm just going to guess that Netflix had more time to work on theirs, and yes. Hulu was rushed either by design or because they suddenly found out, oh, we have to beat Netflix. Yeah, um, I think that's what happened. But the Netflix one felt like a much more complete movie as a documentary to me because it felt like an experience where it starts, it's like, what the hell is happening? You're posed with the question, how did we get here? And and where did we get? Because you just see brief flashes of the chaos. And this is someone who knew very little about it, except for the overall things, not the specifics, the chaos of what's to come. And then you get walked through the experience of the process of what it was like to be there. And then you get led up to the people arriving and, and how bad that it went and how bad can it get? And you're just like scratching your head the whole time. Like, well, and even though the Hulu one, you know, obviously I had the information going into it. I felt much, 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 much more like the Hulu one was, I think a bad habit as in filmmaking craft and storytelling, where it was just telling you what happened. It wasn't giving you the experience, but in, you know, I mean saying, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And you start it more from the perspective of the tourists showing up for the show and stuff like that. So you kind of know it sucks. You know it goes to the beginning. But then even to the point at the end where we're just being given title cards, like, hey, a bunch of people didn't get paid for this. Like, that sucked. Where what the Netflix one did was it actually found... It, gave, it created an emotional experience that the Hulu one didn't because it found who the real victims of this were. And they were the workers in the Bahamas, the locals that were trying to help make this thing happen and getting fleeced for incredible amounts of money and the impact of that and the harm of that and really making them a part of of the documentary so we could really understand in that third act that there really were victims and consequences. And then furthermore, maybe, again, they had obviously access to different interviews, but a lot of it is approach also because they interviewed some of those same people in the in the Hulu one, we also got to see the extent of, like, just see him in action continuing to perpetrate this crime and also really understand the victims in terms of the people that worked for the other, the company that they were trying to launch with this publicity event, finding out that was all a scam, where that's, again, just kind of a thing we hear heard about more or less anecdotally in the Hulu one. So it was, uh, I think it was just much richer, stronger way to accomplish that of giving you an experience, even though they had way better interviews um and subjects but then again we they had the actual guy in the hulu one so you know what what excuse do you have yeah but i didn't feel as much of what the fraud was in the hulu one at all in the netflix one they really show that this event was just one one event of a company that just uh was a scam all along and even mm-hmm. though many of the employees didn't quite realize that the, this is that they were part of the operation, um, Netflix yeah. really then once the festival happened and everybody like all the millennials that flew out and found themselves sleeping in in FEMA tents and not being able no food no no water restrooms very limited um, that disaster once that was all passed 
Netflix stuck mm-hmm. with the story and figured out, okay, what happened next? Um, yeah. How did uh, Billy McFarland react to all this? And he just turned around and built his next scam right away, even though he just came from an FBI interview and, the, and he right. was on probation or whatever, or he was on bail, I think. Um, he immediately went and started scamming people again. And so right. it, it's a, what's nice about it is it takes that theme of social media and how it can be manipulated and used to, for people to be taken advantage of and really make oh, yeah. it make it a a big lesson for for the viewer to understand okay influencers we're living in the time of influencers and we're we're trusting them to to be the good people and we have to still keep all our um senses um together we have to, we have to maintain common sense and not be taken advantage of if something sounds too good to be true it probably is that still is valid i mean some people paid 500 bucks to get out there and they were expecting to be in a villa and right um they were not and um mm-hmm. so that's what i yeah that's that's my point i have some criticism of both documentaries i can well the the funny thing and i think the thing you're talking about also is like in both films you see a lot of the similar footage because they clearly had access to to a lot of the same sources yeah but although hulu had access to not only an, inter- an interview with him an interview with his girlfriend um the way that the netflix one was done made you made me feel like i knew him much more yeah like what a bigger piece of shit he was and even having the guy sitting there talking and giving an interview in the hulu one i didn't feel like i got any better sense of his character because i didn't really use the devices even though they had that great material to really go go deeper on it if that makes any sense and really use the editing to really you know give us a context for it and jump between things and it's always great even in documentary to put people there rather than hear about it and you're put there so much more in the Netflix version than you are in the... Even if you just look at the, the returning home scene, I think it's pretty much just the same footage across the board. Yep. Um, you know, the, the Netflix one's just far more impactful. And following the guy that was like, you know, you almost have like this, this warrior that's throughout it trying to, trying to stop the fire Festival from happening. And again, more resources perhaps, but more more reach, but it just was like f- constructed in a far more impactful way, yep. I felt like. But what are the, the criticisms? Well, in terms of the storytelling, I think both documentaries failed to have the actual festival be a major story arc in the film. So they, there's a lot of build-up, how this comes together, how chaotic this is. How what a disaster is about to happen, and then we go. The first people arrive, <laughs> and the disaster unfolds. And it that's where you really want to have some what what we call in in the dramatic storytelling the fun and games. This is where you need to explore <laughs> that premise, and that just went so fast. And there were so many opportunities right. to really make us experience what it would have been like to be there on that first night when the sun goes down and nobody <laughs> has a tent and there's no food mm-hmm. and <laughs> people are like 
pissing on their mattresses apparently to keep other people away from them and all that that stuff <laughs> that apparently happened was not fully explored at all in these documentaries and i think that's where that's where as a documentary storyteller you gotta like build the story more and i just went right. on youtube and looked at some like vlogs of people that were actually there and there's mm-hmm. it's imp- how it's impossible not to have tons and tons <laughs> of footage of millennials going out to a concert and vlogging about it there's so much stuff out right. there where you could really pick up these stories not just like have a quick sound up but build yeah. these these characters these kids that are arriving and follow them along and maybe get mm-hmm. them in an interview as well and make that a huge part of the documentary i think was was missing yeah. Miss, missed opportunity on both documentaries Would- which I think was, and also something that that helps the Hulu one, because presuming Netflix has more subscribers, they do, it's pushing people to want more. And I was like, now we're going to get it. Like getting into the Hulu one, then you see Billy come out, and it's like, oh, we're going to get all the layers now. And yeah, you're right. And that's a, and that's also kind of speaks to your skills as an editor and, and filmmaker to just kind of see the opportunities in there to make that, take that, even though there are much kind of bigger bigger tent poles going on than these kids having a shitty night. Yeah. You know, that's kind of what people want is to know what it was like to be there. And I don't think you really get to leave either doc with that, but yeah, just to give a specific example, there's this guy, his name is Austin Mills. He's on YouTube and he did a 12 minute vlog of the entire event. And they clearly had the footage available because the shots that he has in his vlog, they're all over both documentaries. But he puts his entire journey basically into 12 minutes, how he gets on the airplane in Miami, how he meets the first people, how they are in the school bus driving up to the site and realizing, oh, these are fucking FEMA tents and (laughs) there's nothing there. (laughs) And then they drive back to the airport. They get locked up there and they're trying to get on a plane and they have to get off the plane twice before they can finally make it. There, I mean, all th- that happens in the dock. It all happened, but it wasn't an experience to the degree that I think it needed to be in the second act for either documentary. It was more always about how how the the leaders sort of what they didn't do or yeah what well what and then also happen. the Netflix one leaning into the people that were really, really deeply affected and damaged by it, which was the the locals. Yeah, and I get that. I mean, that's that's a that's those are some of the victims, and mm-hmm. maybe it was a strategic decision as well because very few people had a lot of empathy for millennials that spent money to go on a trip to the Bahamas and then <laughs> they didn't get what they thought they were going to get, and they should have known right. better based on the information that they had up front. But I, they're still interesting characters, and we still want to yeah. experience these painful I moments. I totally agree. We want to see the dark of the night. We don't just want to talk about it. Um, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I think it's a great point, and I think that's going to be awesome in the in the third version. But one <laughs> one thing I should say before we wrap this up, if yep. there's nothing else on it, is that I did thoroughly enjoy especially the Netflix one, I think they're both very, very much worth watching and very, very eye-opening for me watching it, just the degree. Because I think that this is thematically, the you know, what can lead to this kind of, of event happening or not happening just has so many different 
forms it takes in so many different places in society, especially the modern world, that it's it's very, very, very worth checking out, even in this day and age, how you can just so deliberately mislead people to have it really just so clearly laid out that, yeah, there's a lot of BS out there. It's it's cool to see it captured, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's that's our kind of reactions and, and hopefully some just some thoughts on different ways that it, it's interesting to look at the two different docs. I think you can learn a lot and presuming there's a lot of, of people doing nonfiction stuff for YouTube because, geez, what an accessible way to make a ton of videos. You know, it's good to just be aware of this stuff and how you can actually provide impact with with your filmmaking um, in that forum of nonfiction without going to the point of reality. <laughs> which is, I know, something Sven has a lot of points and insights about. And if you enjoy what you're hearing, subscribe. Wherever you're listening to us, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, let a friend know about the prod- podcast. We appreciate it. We appreciate the way that the views are spreading, the listens are growing. If you would like to uh, leave a comment about what you're hearing, where do they go, Sven? Well, they can go to thisguyedits.com slash comment, or they can go directly to thisguyedits.com slash podcast nice and we look forward to your feedback and insights and your reaction especially if you watch the hulu one first what is your takeaway thank you to curter for the music and as Sven always says happy editing it always feels rushed when it ends but then it always seems nice when it <laughs> yeah, well, once <laughs> once you start wrapping it up, people are sort of dropping out anyway, I assume, if it's anyway. Yeah. Anything like YouTube.